all of these states that we admire, mostly Western states, they have gotten where they've gotten by plundering the resources of the world for industrial growth in a way that seems completely unsustainable. So the collateral damage of Western economic growth on resources, the CO2 in the air, forms of bondage, it's not a pretty picture of successful capitalist development. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. The pandemic is where simple narratives go to die. Many of the predictions that people made 13, 14 months ago have turned out to be wrong. As I argued a few episodes ago, the idea that the pandemic would prove the efficacy of modern states and the failure of a global economic system has turned out to be precisely wrong. There was also another prediction that I and many other people made early on in the pandemic that was starting to look as though it was mistaken. Many of us worried at first that the rise of authoritarian populists over the last years would now have a truly deadly impact. That politicians who don't trust science, who are skeptical of experts, who undermine independent institutions like public health authorities, who clamp down on free speech, would significantly raise the death toll of their countries. For a little while, it looked, thankfully, as though that theory had proven wrong. A few countries led by populists like Poland and Hungary did relatively well in managing the pandemic. And it wasn't really obvious that the largest countries ruled by populists, like Brazil or India, were doing particularly worse. Tragically, that has changed over the last months. If you look around the world today, the countries that are suffering most grievously from the pandemic are ruled by populist leaders. In Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro has consistently downplayed the severity of COVID-19 and opposed public health measures. He has fired three health ministers over the course of the last year. As a result, the pandemic is now out of control in the country and the city of Sao Paulo has started to build vertical cemeteries to accommodate the excess deaths. In Mexico, AMLO, a left-wing populist leader, has been no better. Encouraging people to continue partying in last March and April, belittling COVID as a little flu, and refusing to take real public health measures. But perhaps the most depressing case is India, a country in which the hospitals are now completely overloaded, in which oxygen is running out in many parts of the world's greatest democracy. A country in which Narendra Modi at first lived up to one of his public persona as a competent modernizer and imposed possibly too extreme a lockdown a year ago, but in which he has now given in fully to his populist persona, encouraging religious festivals featuring millions of people to proceed holding giant rallies with tens of thousands of 
supporters in the state of West Bengal and other places where there's state elections coming up and clamping down on the free speech of those who criticized the government. At his request, and shamefully, Twitter has deleted a number of posts by journalists and opposition politicians criticizing his handling of COVID-19 under the utterly unbelievable pretense of fighting misinformation. Those of us who have warned about the rise of populism for many years have always worried that this could take a very real toll on the lives of ordinary citizens. Tragically, this is now being confirmed to an extent that few of us could have imagined before the arrival of COVID-19. Well, today it's my real pleasure to introduce a conversation with James Scott, one of the most eminent social scientists at work in the world today. James, or Jim, as he prefers, is the Sterling Professor of Political Science at Yale. He is an anarchist who views the modern state and its attempt to rationalize the world very skeptically, but also recognizes that the task facing us in the real world is how to improve it, how to reform it, how to build on it, rather than how to move beyond it. We had a broad conversation that touches on many of Jim's important works, two cheers for anarchism, not three cheers, two cheers for anarchism, but also the foundational against the grain and seeing like a state. Jim, for the last 10 years, has been devoting his work to Myanmar. And so part of the conversation also is about the courageous movement for democracy that has been trying to beat back the renewal of a military dictatorship there over the last years. Jim Scott, welcome to the podcast. Pleased to be here. So you are one of the great critics of the state and of a particular kind of top-town view in which the state tends to conceptualize the world within social science. For those of us who think that the state can often do many good things. Things like the welfare state are one of the great achievements of modernity. Perhaps many of the problems we see in society might be solved in part by government action. Why should we be skeptical of this state? First of all, let's notice that something like the Danish welfare state has been around for perhaps 35 years maximum. And states that took their population's welfare at all seriously have been around only since the Bismarckian state of Prussia. I think that was the beginning of a state that tried to systematically understand the health, longevity, and so on of its population. So the point is that for almost all of human history, one has been dealing with a quite different state whose objective was to extract as much wealth, grain, taxes, and manpower from the population as possible and to help support uh, forms of bonded labor or slavery. And so you think that that is, in a way, the more typical form that the state has taken. Do you think that still should inform how we think about even relatively benevolent states like the Danish one now? Or have we managed to overcome that legacy, at least in some parts of the world? So 
I guess the question for me, again, although I call myself a sort of half-assed anarchist, and that's why the book that I wrote was called Two Cheers for Anarchism, not Three Cheers. I don't imagine we're going to abolish the state. But the thing to remember about the welfare state and the emancipatory things it does is that it has only done that with the pistol at its temple. That is to say, the French Revolution eliminated the estates and created the idea of equal citizenship. The New Deal was essentially an effort to save capitalism from revolutionary pressures from below because of the Depression. And so it seems to me that, yes, do states make emancipatory moves? Yes, they do. But they only do it with a pistol at their temple. And we should understand that that's how such emancipatory moves take place. So it seems to me there's definite strands to the critique you outline. One is telling us about what the nature of a state was for much of its history. Another is how even sometimes when the state tries to do good, it actually does anything but. So perhaps we can take those pieces as background and then move into some of the more contemporary questions. Sure. So, you know, you write about the origins of modern states against the grain, among other works. How does a state come to be and what can we learn from the early history of a state? First of all, I make the same argument I made about the state, but even on a longer time frame, that the state, if we think of the earliest states as walled towns with kings and tax collectors and artisans and a small army, then we're talking about something that came into existence roughly three millennia before Christ, right? That is to say, not more than five millennia ago. And Homo sapiens has been around for 200,000 years. So the state appeared, if you like, at five minutes to midnight, if you like, if we take that as an entire day. And so it's a late invention. And all of the states that we are familiar with, almost without exception, there are a couple of interesting exceptions, but they all occurred in floodplain land, lowlands, where there was, if you like, because of the flood pulse of a river, there was nutritious soil provided every year as the flood retreated after killing all the weeds and putting down nutrition. It was the only place in the world where you could have concentrated grain and concentrated population such that it was possible to make a state and control both the manpower and grain and surplus that a state needs. So it's very interesting to learn about where the state originates. How do you evaluate that change, first of all? I know that there's a sort of lively debate about whether actually human beings were better off before they formed these political entities, which often came along with deep hierarchies, deep forms of social control. And there's an argument about whether they were economically better off before they did that as well. You know, as somebody who is ambivalent about the state, who has two chairs for anarchy, but not free, how would you describe the transformation of the lives of the residents of those early states? If we're talking about the early state, then it seems to me, Stephen Pinker, to the contrary, notwithstanding, that the answer is simple. Life was better for hunters and gatherers than it was for subjects in the early state. That's absolutely clear. It's clear in the physical remains and the bones, if you like, the bones of people in the early agricultural states show 
more signs of malnutrition and interruptions in growth because of that malnutrition, mostly iron deficiency, by the way. And if you find the skeletons of people in living and hunting and gathering and foraging societies, their skeletons, they're bigger, fewer interruptions in growth, and they show very little sign ever of any malnutrition or vitamin deficiency. So the diet in the early states was not good for your health. And in a sense, all of those states, I should add, all of the states, the early states are grain states. They require a staple of grain that can be grown in a concentrated way. And the hunters and gatherers we're talking about, one has this idea of, let's say, Mesopotamia, where the earliest states arose by and large, because it became much later a very arid area that could only be farmed because of irrigation. But at the time in which these states were established, it was a wetland. The sea level was another 300 feet higher than it is today. And the people who lived in that area had many different ecological zones to move between. So they didn't have to work very hard. And the thing I want to say about hunters and gatherers is that we should never see them as people who get up in the morning, walk out into the forest and hope to find a bird or an animal to throw a spear at. Almost all of the hunting that takes place is time to the natural migrations of game animals. So the way to think about this is to think about the salmon runs in the Pacific Northwest, which was the richest area before agriculture you could possibly imagine. And it was because in two weeks, the people taking their nutrition from the runs of salmon, in two weeks, they could get the protein that they needed for the whole year. So the fact is that even contemporary hunters and gatherers don't spend an eight-hour day getting their nutrition. They spend about half their time working on subsistence. So they are not a day away from starvation at all. That's fascinating. That sounds like a nice life. First up by the river for two weeks a year, and then you eat salmon for the rest of the day. That sounds a little bit like my pandemic, actually. Mine is the gathering with salmon myself. Right. I'm exaggerating a little, but there are major sources of proteins. In Mesopotamia, there were gazelle migrations. And by building a kind of, if you like, a sluice with not stone, but brush and so on, they could create a channel, a funnel that funneled the gazelles when they came by into a killing ground. And so it was essentially like a river of gazelles rather than a river of salmon. And so it's not just natural migrations of game animals, but also the fruiting of trees with nuts and trees with fruits. If you're there at the right time and you are attuned to all of those rhythms, it's not a lot of work providing the population is not excessive and providing that you have lots of ecological zones, wet areas, dry areas, seasonal differences. This is presumably one of the differences that in the early states the population expands a lot. So the lives of each member of these early states may have been harsher than the lives of their ancestors, but these states were able to sustain real growth of the human population. What happens then? So you're saying, look, like if you're in the early states, life is clearly less good. My understanding is that then from the early states, there's only very limited economic growth for thousands of years. So to what extent does the image you describe still apply in medieval Europe or in the China of 1000 AD or in different parts of the world until, let's say, 1700? If you're talking about population growth, 
we have the same phenomenon we've talked about in other contexts already, and that is that in 1750, which is not so very long ago, the world population was only three quarters of a billion. And it's now going on eight billion. So the point is that, yes, the population expanded, but it grew very, very slowly for the longest possible time. And that curve is one of those famous hockey stick curves in which it goes up dramatically only after the 17th century and so on and the fossil fuel revolution. The question is, I suppose, it is true, of course, that the use of the floodplain to commandeer a productive population growing a surplus, to use it as taxes, created all the beautiful things we like to see in museums, right, of the monumental centers of these places and the artisanal products and idols and statues and so on. And so that is a product of the extraction of a surplus by a population. And and I think it is absolutely clear that all of these early states had a population problem of keeping that population in place because it was exploited in conscription. It was exploited for its surplus, for unfree labor, and so on. And so all of the warfare of early, early states was what I call capture warfare. It was not about territory, except in special places where there was a bottleneck and trade routes that it was important to control. But aside from that, all of the wars were wars of capture in which the effort was to maintain a population for the following reasons. First of all, people were leaking away. You had flight. Sometimes if a famine or epidemic leaked away in a hemorrhage, but it would dribble away as well. And as a result of that, this population had to be systematically replaced, and it was replaced by wars of capture. So the Athenians, right, 70% of the population of Athens are slaves. And those slaves are captured by Athenian military. And when they capture a place, they march especially the women and children back because they also have a reproductive problem. That is to say, they want to capture women and children especially. And they want to capture the women not just because they are labor or wives for that matter, but they are captured for the reproductive services that they help to solve the population problem. So when you think of these early exploitative states of people having relatively poor nutrition in them, with war being the central element of capture rather than conquest, and when you fast forward, for a long time you have some population growth, but not that much, some economic growth, but not that much economic growth. Then you wind up having a quite different set of states that arise in the early modern period. And I feel like there's a different work of yours that's particularly relevant to that time period, which is seeing like a state and your critique of the ways in which those states tried to rationalize their territory, remake their populations and their social world. What is wrong with what you call that sort of modernist vision? Why does that create a different kind of problem that we should be concerned about? A modernist vision depends on how extreme it is. The modernist vision requires for its high modernism, for its most extreme examples, 
the absence of the restraining factors of democratic social organization, resistance, and good example is Russia after the First World War, in which it was a defeated, although not conquered, and a collapsed civil society and government, the Bolsheviks, with a very modernist idea taken from the Germans, actually, during the First World War about the administrative state. And my argument, as you know, perhaps, I start off that book with my example of scientific forestry. And the reason why scientific forestry is a good example is because once you take some complicated natural phenomenon like a forest and reduce it to so many cubic feet of firewood and lumber and manage it for that purpose, and if cultivate it like the row crops of a grain field, you destroy all the ecological processes in the forest and open that forest to disease and collapse and so on. And so in a sense, to take a natural phenomenon and reduce it to a one commodity machine is almost certainly to violate ecological processes that we don't understand and that have then dramatically negative effects over the long run. So this is an example of how an attempt to rationalize the world, an attempt to say, hey, we have all these forests, but we're not really using in a rational way. And here's a way of thinking about how you compare different forests to each other, how you compare what we might be able to get out of them to each other, and how we then create mechanisms for making sure that we exploit them as best as possible wind up being counterproductive and wind up failing in all kinds of different ways. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on a more urban example of this. I was thinking a lot about your book when I was traveling briefly in Brazil two years ago when I went to Brasilia, which is beloved by architects around the world. It looks beautiful in models. But when I was there, I was really struck by how it just did not work at all as an urban environment. You know, they have a huge central mall modeled a little bit on the one in Washington DC perhaps, but much, much larger, which was meant to be the space for political engagement. But it's so big, but even if a giant protest just looks lost within it. They have these housing blocks where the idea was that one raised stilts and people could assemble underneath them in order to have political debates. But of course, who uses these weird windswept spaces underneath the houses, drug dealers and criminals and so on. So it's sort of one example after the other in the city of how a very utopian vision, a very progressive vision of what a city might look like has sort of gone wrong in each state. Tell us a little bit about how that fits into the kinds of problems you're interested in. So for me, in the course of writing, seeing like a state, and that's why I use the verb to see in the title in a sense, is I was struck again and again by the mistaken assumption that visual order is synonymous with efficiency and working order. And my favorite quote is from Jane Jacobs, who was interested in more complicated cities and how they worked. And her point was that the intestines of a rabbit might look like a mess, but they are perfectly designed for doing what they do. Her other example was the city desk in an urban newspaper office. So that, in a sense, Brasilia is, and that's the problem with a certain kind of architecture, that the visual order is the order that is seen from a helicopter as opposed to experienced by people who actually live on the ground. And it's all the things that we love 
those of us who live in cities love about this mixed use of complicated neighborhoods that are visually interesting, that have all the services, the petty bourgeoisie, the bar, the restaurant, the sort of park benches, the bakeries, and so on, that make a city a kind of interesting place to live. The interesting thing also about Le Corbusier, because he, although he wasn't as da Costa who, who designed Brasilia, but it was in the Le Corbusier ideological vision. What was interesting is that, like Bauhaus, it was an architecture for an abstract human being, a human being who could be anywhere, who needed so many square feet per person, who needed so much fresh water, who needed so much sunlight, who needed so much outdoor space. What's interesting is that it's the assumption that people were uh, units rather than bearers of culture, aesthetics, and so on. And so there is not even the slightest reference to the history of the Portuguese square with the market and the church. So what's interesting is that it was designed for a abstract human being rather than a Brazilian, let alone someone from Sao Paulo or Rio. It was just worth saying that I don't know much about it, but there was a kind of psychological illness that was called Brasilia-itis that was the depression that people went into because all there was in Brasilia was essentially home and the office. But as you know, Brasilia became more interesting and everything that became more interesting was the unplanned Brasilia that people invented in the process of trying to make a possible, a plausible life in Brasilia. So I think cities are a great prism into this larger critique of state planning and what works about it and what doesn't. So let me push another comparison. There's an easy contrast to be made between Brasilia and a city like Rome in Europe or a city like Bangkok in Asia, cities that have grown up organically over time with some amount of planning, of course, but which perhaps in a positive sense resemble the intestines of a rabbit more closely than they do the sort of hyper-planned nature of Brasilia. What about cities like New York, which are on a grid? They are quite deeply planned cities, actually, and yet they feel much more organic, much more lively, like they have this kind of mix of life that you were evoking. Did something go right in the planning there? Or is the sort of force of humanity in a place like New York so strong that it has overpowered the planning and rehumanized it like the most interesting parts of Brasilia that you were talking about? The interesting thing about New York, from my perspective, is that it's a hybrid city. That is to say, south of Wall Street, and Wall Street is where the wall of the original Dutch village was located. Manhattan below Wall Street is not a grid. The basic plan of it is much more like a European city for that reason, yes. Exactly. And actually was extremely desirable as a place to live because it grew more organically without straight lines of a grid. Whereas New York above Wall Street is the city you would design if you gave a child a ruler and a blank piece of paper and said, design for me a city with the sort of numbers of avenues and numbers of streets. So if you're the police and you want to find somebody on the Upper East Side, it's pretty easy to sort of find where someone is. You want to find someone in Fez or Meknes in an ancient Islamic city or in Bruges, which is the other example I give, then you kind of need a local tracker 
And so it is true, I think. I mean, Philadelphia or Chicago, good example of grid cities. And that's part of the Enlightenment idea, right, of uh, having a lucid, legible, easily navigated city. There are Midwestern cities in which there are streets or avenues that are numbered. And then the streets that cross are the succession of U.S. presidents from Washington all the way to Roosevelt. And I get lost around the Civil War when the names, right? I don't know who comes after whom. It's meant to have exactly that kind of order. I'm wandering away a little bit, but notice that the way in which we messed with rivers is the same way. So, you know, you take a river like the Rhine and you turn it into a canal so that ships can pass going both ways of a particular depth, a particular width, like a superhighway, but for ships. Or you make it into a set of hydroelectric dams, you build levees so that it doesn't occupy its floodplain. So you take a river that sings many tunes if it's left alone, and you straitjacket that river, or amputate it, or Taxidermy is a word that's often used as well. You have it sing one song. And the result actually is a river that in the final analysis doesn't work. So you get, for example, the 1993 flood of the Mississippi or 1927 flood. And these are floods that are caused by all of the previous interventions in the river that are overwhelmed in a big flood. Let me push back on this a little bit, because the question that I'm asking myself is, I have learned a tremendous amount from your work, and I take these critiques very seriously, but at the same time, we're now stuck in modern states, and it doesn't seem possible to avoid planning altogether. And I'm struck that actually some of these things work very well. I love New York City and I love the part above Wall Street today more than the part below Wall Street that may have something to do with the different activities that are going on in lower Manhattan and something a few blocks above that, like the village or something like that. But even when you talk about straight-jacketed rivers or amputated rivers, when you think of something like the Suez Canal, it is an incredibly important lifeblood of a global economy. And it turns out to be incredibly functional. In fact, we had this little drama a little while ago with this ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal and people thought, my God, this is going to destroy the global economy and they'll never be able to move the ship. But actually it took them, I believe, seven or eight days and they were able to float the ship. And once again, this canal provides this really crucial service to the global economy. So I guess the question that I'm trying to push on is how should we think about planning in contemporary societies? Because I'm very persuaded by your work about the ways in which that can go badly wrong, but I also don't see a way out of it. So is the lessons about how to plan, what can we learn about how to act? It's a good question. So to go back to your experience in Brasilia itself, if the planning has anything to do with creating a satisfactory life for the people who live within the plan, then you should pay attention to what they want, right? And they should be part of the planning process. That is to say, if you think of the modern state creating low-cost housing for poor people in Chicago and New Haven, New Haven's a great example, by the way, of absolutely modernist planning gone desperately wrong for a long time. They got it right now. But the point is that the public housing that they created was so monolithic and so dead and so unrelated to the life world of the people for whom it was planned 
that they tore it to pieces. And finally, it had to be all torn down and they had to start from zero. And also, you have to lose the view that visual order equals working order. So, for example, in West Africa, people grew four or five crops on the same land at the same time with certain things shading others and so on. And to the British colonialists and agricultural specialists, this looked like really primitive kind of agriculture. And so they tore it all up and had monocropping, which is efficient for certain reasons, but they ended up degrading the soil. And after 30 years of this fuck up, if you don't mind the expression, they decided to do scientific tests of the productivity of the traditional agriculture compared to the agriculture that they had imposed as modern agriculture. And they found that the traditional agriculture was more productive, even in scientific terms. So it seems to me that one should never assume that visual order without empirically documenting it by research equals working order. Now, it's kind of interesting. I'm not against things like the Suez Canal. There was, as you know, in the 18th and early 19th century, there was this enormous canal bubble in which everyone in the world was building canals. But the idea, since the way in which freight was moved around prior to railroads was on rivers, that's the most efficient way, that the result of that was that if you could connect the Danube and the Rhine, the Rhone and the Rhine, if you could connect two watersheds, you had a sort of much larger market. You could move goods more cheaply. And so it seems to me that canal building is creating connections that did not previously exist by modern engineering. And I'm sure it had unintended consequences of water levels and tides that I don't know about, but it seems to me that by and large, it had no drastic negative consequences. How do you feel about urban development around the world at the moment? Which is to say that when I think about where urban growth has taken place over the last decades, to some extent population growth, so that's less the case in China. It feels like two very different stories. Now, we don't know anything about this, so I may be completely off. But in Africa, where we obviously have huge population growth, a lot of it seems to be in unplanned developments and to some extent slums in places like Nairobi, for example, and places like Lagos and many other cities around the continent. And a lot of people would look at that and say, well, there's no visual order. A lot of these houses don't have running water or electricity. So this is terrible. And then on the other hand, you have the rise of the new Asian megacities, particularly in China. Many second, third tier cities, which probably aren't even particularly well known to many listeners of this podcast, but that have millions of people in them. And that often are hyper-planned, right? When you look at them, they have, you know, whatever it is, a hundred different settlements in the city and each settlement is a huge number of high-rise buildings. It really looks like they're sort of an architect somewhere just thinking up and dreaming up the whole city. Should we be more concerned about what life may turn out to look like and feel like in these relatively planned and quite affluent Asian super cities? And should we be relatively less concerned than many are about what the sort of long-term legacy of these unplanned developments in places like Lagos or Nairobi are? Because my instinct is still to say, well, even for one of them looks quite lively and fun and engaging in all kinds of ways, and the other looks perhaps quite stark and a little dystopian, 
the amount of amenities that is available in each, the amount of affluence that they reflect, the kinds of opportunities that people in them have is so vastly different that we shouldn't lament these sort of Asian megacities too much relative to over disadvantages that you would encounter in an unplanned development in Lagos or Nairobi. So again, I should start by a disclaimer of the fact that my life has been devoted to peasants and agriculture more than to urban planning and urban history. So I'm a little out of my depth, but oh well, I have written about cities after all. And it seems to me that one of the best examples, it's a complicated story. Let us take, for example, Singapore. And Singapore is actually a model for China to some considerable degree. So that Singapore decided this would be at the end of the 60s under Lee Kuan Yew. They probably built more new housing than any city of its size anywhere in the world at the time. And like Baron Hausmann in Paris, it had lots of good public health results. That as people had cleaner water, they had larger apartments, living space, they had sewage, indoor toilets, and playgrounds, and so on. So yes, there were public health and sanitation results that were completely positive. On the other hand, the design, and this was true for Hausmann too, by the way, in 1850s Paris, the design was intended to break up Malay and Chinese clan areas and Indian areas and to disperse all of these ethnic and lineage groups over the public housing landscape so that they became completely dependent on the People's Action Party for whether you got into preschool, whether you got public welfare, whether you got certain government subsidies and so on. So it was a plan that did two things at the same time. It improved public health and it atomized the population so they controlled in a granular way. And it was a success in both respects. So is that better? Abstractly, I guess, I don't know if you're familiar with Jane Jacobs' idea of unslumming. And her argument was that if you provide jobs and provide insurance and loans, that what looks like a slum will gradually become a non-slum because people will improve their housing, they'll have access to loans, they'll have insurance and so on. And it seems to me that what I would prefer, let's say, if you take Mexico City or Lima or any of the West African large cities or Nairobi, as you say, it'd be interesting actually to compare, if you like, a new city and how it functions in terms of the human satisfaction that it provides, as opposed to a city that takes an existing slum and works steadily to upgrade it to provide sewage, to provide water. And so here's the point. I'm thinking of this with respect to Burmese universities today and Parisian universities after 1968. The effort was to take institutions that were seen as a threat to public order because they were radical institutions and to atomize them and spread them into, instead of the Sorbonne, you had Paris 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, scattered all over in the suburbs, and much of the third world, including Burma, has spread their universities into outlying areas and would take a bus to the university. So 
a lot of public housing has a undeclared purpose of social control and the prevention of organized dissent. Hmm. The idea of unslumming is really interesting. And actually, even when you think of Asian cities, of course, in many of those cities, the most desirable areas now are the former hutongs, which certainly were the poor areas. I don't know that they were ever exactly slums, but they're the closest equivalent I can think of. A lot of them have been torn down, but the ones that still exist and that have been renovated and equipped with running water and electricity are now extremely desirable, precisely because they have many of those aspects of comparatively unplanned order rather than the sort of super planned order. So it's a hopeful vision to think that perhaps some areas of these rising African megacities may wind up with the same possibility. You mentioned Burma a moment ago. I have to say one of the many things I admire about you is that as a not entirely young man, you started to learn Burmese and started to work on the country and you have a significant work on the country coming out relatively soon, as I understand. What have you been working on with respect to the country? And then perhaps after you tell us about that, I'd love to hear your assessment of the both dire, but also in some ways inspiring political situation in the country today. Thanks. It's a long story, and I won't give you the details, but more or less a mistake that made me into a Southeast Asianist. I will insist on the details of that story. Well, okay. I was a scholarship student at Williams College, and I was doing an economics honors thesis on German wartime mobilization. It turned out that during the Second World War, the Germans did not have second and triple shifts even when they had the population early in the war. And the question I was supposed to solve was why they didn't. In any case, to make a long story short, I fell in love and didn't do any work in my first semester of my senior year on the thesis. And my advisor, who was a quite brilliant man, saw through my efforts to fake how much work I'd done and told me to get out. And he wasn't going to advise me. And so if I wanted to graduate with honors in economics, I had to find someone who would adopt me and I just knocked systematically on every door in the economics department. And I found someone who worked on Indonesia, but he said, I'd like to know something about Burmese economic development. If you'll work on Burmese economic development, I will adopt you. And I did. So I did a dissertation on Burmese economic plans. In any case, I would have studied graduate school. I went to Burma for a year on a fellowship right after college. And I would have worked on Burma, except that it closed up and I wouldn't have been able to do field work. I would have done China, but I couldn't do field work there. So finally, I decided to work on Malay language because Malay is spoken in Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, and the Philippines. So I knew one of these countries I could do research in. And that's how I worked in Malay villages for quite some time. And then I decided I wanted to go back to Burma when it opened. And that's why I've been working on Burma. And I don't quite know why. It's still a fairly militarized country so that when I was there and traveling with friends, we would occasionally be barred from certain places and people would ask me what I was doing. And I have always been interested in rivers from canoeing and fishing and so on. And so my excuse wherever I was found was that I was studying the Irrawaddy River because wherever I was, was either close to the Irrawaddy or close to a tributary. And so I had an all-purpose excuse. And it gradually became a kind of passion to sort of understand this river that's the lifeblood of Burmese culture. And so I hope to write 
a biography of the river, maybe even in the first person, as if the river speaks. And so it will not be a history of Homo sapiens and the river. It'll be a history of the river, if you like, told by the river starting in geological time and working up to the present. Because I think my students, they tend to think of a river as just so much H2O that has to be divided up between different claimants, right? And as a resource, essentially. And they don't think about all of the life forms whose life world depends on the river, like the fish and the crabs and the water birds and so on. So I want to tell a different river story than the usual river story. And as I indicated before we began, I'm deeply involved now in trying to support the Burmese democratic protesters who are protesting against the military coup that took place on February the 1st. So tell us a little bit about the political background here. I think one of the strange ironies, but I noticed when we were trying to commission a piece about Burma for persuasion, is that because the country has been closed down for so long, it is actually very difficult to understand much about the country. It's difficult, for example, you know, have connections to activists from many different parts of the world. I don't know many Burmese activists. You know, I have friends who have lived in many countries around the world. I don't have any friends who have lived in Myanmar. And so there's a strange irony where how long the country has been closed down makes it, in fact, more difficult for people outside the country to understand it and to get the stakes of what's going on there. So if you will tell us a little bit about the military regime there, the ways in which it has been challenged over the last decade and how it then took control again a few months ago at this point. Sure. You're absolutely right that I think, you know, along with places like Bhutan and so on, you could argue that it's certainly the least known country in Southeast Asia. And essentially, Burma withdrew from Cold War politics under military rule from 1962 or even before that, even the parliamentary period. It did not become involved in the Cold War on either side over time. The military took over and has ruled essentially from 1962 until today. So we're talking 60 years of military rule, even though it was shared with the elected parliament for the last 10 years. So the fact is that it was hard for tourists to go there. I think you could only get a one-week visa, two-week visa maximum. It's only in the last 10 years that the Burmese themselves have been exposed in a big way to world currents and an open world of media and newspaper and social media, which has been very important. And so what's interesting to me and kind of surprising is that a country that has so little, if you like, democratic practice and what democratic practices has had has only been since 2011, although there was a big uprising. There was an election in 1990 after an uprising in 1988, but that was more about questions of inflation. In any case, it surprised me that the reaction to the military coup was so massive and concentrated in this population between 15 and 35, by and large, who went out into the streets and who didn't have long lessons in nonviolent resistance, although Aung San Suu Kyi is a aficionado of Gandhi and Martin Luther King, so it's not as if they're completely innocent of these. But it's been the largest nonviolent 
democratic movement I think we've seen in decades and inspiring in terms of its creativity as well in hundreds of ways. I used to think that the Hong Kong protesters had essentially created a new repertoire for nonviolent protests, democracy protests. But I think the Burmese have outdone them over the past two months. And I don't know how this is going to turn out because as you've noticed, unlike Hong Kong, this is a military that is actually executing with snipers and so on, protesters by shooting them in the head and the chest and essentially murdering them as a form of intimidation. And that is something that they learn to do in repressing all of the minority groups, like the Rohingya, for example, but also the Karen and Kachin. So now the Burmese public is experiencing what the ethnic minorities have been experiencing for the last three or four decades. That's a haunting observation, but I did not know. I'm trying to understand why the reaction to what's going on in the country has been so muted. And why actually I don't think most people, even most very politically clued in people, are aware of the extent of democratic resistance that is going on at the moment. I think beyond the reason that I outlined earlier, which is that it's just a country that even a lot of journalists, a lot of politicians don't know very much about, there's perhaps two elements. One is that Aung San Suu Kyi, the democratic leader, is seen as having been complicit in the persecution of Rohingya and other minorities. And so there isn't an easy story of a hero and a villain, which often exists at least as long as people have been in the opposition. It's easy to think that uh, democratic leaders are heroes. And then sometimes when they get into office, they turn out not to be quite so heroic. But normally at this point of the struggle, there is a kind of easy hero and villain narrative, and that doesn't exist in Burma at the moment. And the second reason perhaps is that it just seems from the outside relatively unlikely that the democratic movement will succeed, that it seems like this is a relatively unified military regime that is willing, as you pointed out, to use tremendous violence and force against its own population. And so the prospects of success seem quite dire. Why do you think we should care about this democracy movement, despite Aung San Suu Kyi's complicated role in the persecution of Rohingya? And do you think there's reason to be more optimistic about its long-term success than many people perhaps assume? So to begin with Aung San Suu Kyi, It's true that she was complicit in the repression of the Rohingya. And unfortunately, that did not cost her a great deal within Burma. There's a great deal of hatred for Islam that's widely shared in the population. And although some of the protesters have gone out of their way to apologize to the Rohingya in the last couple of weeks, the fact is that Aung San Suu Kyi's international image has been tarnished forever, but her image in the country is still as the democracy lady who won the recent elections by a landslide even bigger than before the Rohingya events and so on. So it hasn't cost her anything in Burma. And some people, I don't believe this, but some people believe that she was playing a long game in order to get the constitution changed and did not want to royal the military and that she actually was against what happened to the Rohingya. I don't believe that that's true. I think we have no evidence that says it's true. So the question is, your point about the military, the military is unbelievably isolated in its own 
self-contained economy. That is, the soldiers live in barracks. They have their own housing. They have their own food supply. They have their own schools. They have their own hospitals. So they are insulated almost entirely from the civilian population. And the new capital, speaking of Brasilia, Naypyidaw, is a capital where the military elite now is not in Mandalay or in Rangoon, but in their own little Brasilia that was just built in the last 10 years and isolated as well. So that I think the pessimistic predictions that you refer to are probably fairly accurate. I don't see much in the way of evidence that the military will crack or fracture, although Some of the police have gone over to the protesters. What has happened, however, is that this is a military that has lost every last shred of legitimacy that it ever had for virtually all Burmese. And so if it continues to rule, it continues to rule just by brute force as a hated institution. It had a certain amount of nationalist backing historically. Now, It's just the army. And so the question is, will it eventually crack? I think your pessimistic reading is probably the correct one, that the army has more bullets than the population has bodies, and that it's likely to end badly and people will have to slink back to their houses and try to survive or run to Thailand and so on. In fact, we're trying to organize a program for endangered scholars who are in hiding now and hope to get to Thailand along the lines of what was done for the Chileans in the 70s after Allende was assassinated. Yeah, and we'll put a link to that initiative in the show notes. That seems like one important way of at least concretely helping particular people and particular scholars who are endangered in the country and it's admirable that you're standing this up. Let me close off this conversation with a broad question, which is that I'm still trying to digest the implications of all of your work for how to think about politics today. And I know that that is a very big question, but it's one that I've grappled with reading your work, which has changed the way that I see the world, which has made me uncomfortable with many of the assumptions I used to have, which I find persuasive in many ways. But when it comes to the sort of upshot, I sometimes get a little bit stuck precisely because we do live in these complicated modern states. It seems impossible not to do any planning at all. We both, as you've made very amply evident in the context of Myanmar, care about values like democracy. So how do you take the anarchist critique of the worst aspects of a modern state and channel it into a productive politics where you can nevertheless go out in the world and try and fight for some of the values, like making sure that the poor people in the world have better standards of living, like making sure that we have democracy and rights and freedoms for most people. What to change about the political practice of those who share those values if they take the lessons of your work seriously? I puzzle over these same things as you puzzle over them. It's not as if I have some straightforward answer. And so in the book, Two Cheers for Anarchism, I make it clear that we're unlikely to get rid of the Westphalian state. That is the form of rule that we are more or less cursed or blessed with. And so the idea of the anarchist vision of getting rid of the state is hopelessly utopian. And our job 
is to domesticate the state, if you like. And I'm not very optimistic that we'll be able to. And although there are states that are more or less admirable in terms of the degree of freedom that they afford their population and the degree of access to sort of popular dissent and complaints and so on. If we've got to have states, let's have social democratic states with functioning democracies and a welfare state. However, if you step back from that and widen the lens much more than we have, then all of these states that we admire, mostly Western states, they have gotten where they've gotten by plundering the resources of the world for industrial growth in a way that seems completely unsustainable. So if you like, the collateral damage of Western economic growth on resources, the CO2 in the air, forms of bondage in the third world and in mines and plantations and so on, it's not a pretty picture of, if you like, the substructure or infrastructure of successful capitalist development, even when it's in a political form that is relatively admirable compared to other forms. So when you open the lens that wide, I've become a true pessimist, I'm afraid. Well, on this uplifting note, Jim Scott, (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And the site, by the way, is Mutual Aid Myanmar for people who want to help the Myanmar Democratic Forces on the web. Wonderful. So Mutual Aid Myanmar, and we'll send that in the show links as well. Thank you so much. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.